you've got to accept that there are some sacrifices to be made yeah. and know which ones you are and aren't. Yeah. You know, I've lost relationships, good ones, important ones. I've compromised on family. There's things I will regret forever. And I've put some of these entrepreneurial endeavors first and some of those I will regret. And some of them I accept now are the cost of doing this. Mm. And I think at least if you go into this knowing that there's going to be sacrifice and accepting it, then at least you can avoid the most difficult poison of all of this, which is resentment. Welcome back to the Take Flight podcast with me, Mark Whittle, where we speak with peak performing athletes and sports stars, high achieving entrepreneurs, CEOs and business founders, and the leading lifestyle specialists and Zen masters. Why do we do this? To hear all about the stories of their success, to inspire us to take action on our own goals and take that leap of faith. I am so, so excited to announce this one. The guest for episode 27 of the Take Flight podcast is my favorite author, of my favourite book from last year, Sam Cuniff Elende. You would have seen me post last year on Instagram if you follow me, it's at WhittleTakeFlight. You would have seen me post the Be More Pirate book, I think it was in the summer last year, and I absolutely loved reading it. It's so, so good. And is now my first recommendation when people ask me what they should be reading alongside Ryan Holiday's Obstacle is the Way. Be More Pirate is on the Take Flight bookshelf along with my other must reads which you can see at flight.co.uk forward slash bookshelf and you can also buy the book there too but sam is not just an author he is a multi-award winning serial entrepreneur with 10 successful startups to his name including the bafta winning content agency don't panic and the industry leading creative youth network liberty and it was in the liberty offices in brixton that we actually sat down and recorded this such a good vibe in the office met some awesome people there as well which was a nice little bonus. But Sam is honestly an amazing person. I loved meeting him. I absolutely loved chatting with him. In this episode, there's a little bit of everything. We speak about building businesses. We speak about the sacrifice that comes from entrepreneurship, which is something that isn't often talked about. We talk about overcoming huge obstacles. Of course, we talk all about pirates and the concept of the book, Be More Pirate, and where it came from, and how you even start writing a book, what happens. We talk about the importance of breaking rules, and I absolutely loved this bit of the book. It was unbelievable. It's the piece of the book where he talks about rebelling and not always having to listen to these stupid rules that are put in place. And it's something that when I read the book, it hit me right between the eyes and something that I've always tried to do myself. Little stupid rules that people put in place. Why do we follow them all? Why do we just walk along like sheep? And, And Sam has an amazing philosophy on this where he wants people to be breaking at least one rule a day. And I love that concept. I love the idea. So I'm going to start doing it for sure. We talk about why we have to make the most of our time here on earth and so, so much more. As I said, it was an absolute pleasure recording this. I hope you enjoy it even a tiny fifth as much as I did. Please enjoy episode 27 of the Take Flight podcast with the one and only Sam Caniff Elende. Thanks for listening. Sam Caniff Elende, welcome to the Take Flight podcast. Thanks very much indeed for having me on. I'm very proud to be here. Oh, it's amazing. Thanks so much for doing it. I've, uh, I've been looking forward to doing it. So my favourite author or my favourite book of 2018. That's such a compliment. And knowing that you, the level of conversations that you've been having about a topic that feels so close to my heart, I take that really seriously. So yeah. thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. No, it, uh, it really hit home with me. So had a big impact. I read it in about, I think it was summer uh, last year. And how did you say it came to you? So it came to me through a friend of mine. Ben Sorgana, BSG, who's yep. the, one of the co-founders of Rebel Book Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was on the podcast, episode seven, I think it was. And it was actually on the podcast. We were talking about the book. And he said, uh, the next guest is a guy called Sam Kanafalende, who's got a book called Be More Pirate. And straight away, just by hearing the title of the book, I thought, that sounds incredible. So I hassled Ben to give me his coffee, I have to admit. Uh, and I can, I've got some. I've got some here. You, okay. can, you can have a copy of your own. Oh, amazing. I, I can't tell you, right? It's such a privilege being someone who's devoured podcasts like this and you know loves reading and books to then find the communities that you've been part of then supporting your idea Mm. it's it's always surprising I still haven't got over meeting someone they go oh I really like your book (laughs) inside I'm like wow (laughs) and I'm trying to be cool about it but yeah (laughs) I'll tell you what even more amazing because I've seen on Twitter that 
uh, I think it was either last week or the week before, there was Bill Gates who was seen holding the verk. Yeah. And then like the week later, it was Ryan Gosling holding yep. the verk. Yep. That's amazing. Well, it's also not true. Oh, really? I did that. Oh, did you? <laughs> oh, no, I thought it was true. I mean, the, it looks the, real. The book's out in the US this yeah. week. And, and when it came out in the UK, I did a little bunch of stuff. Yeah. I, I, uh, I fly posted my publisher's office. I, uh, someone who'd read the book lent me a projector. I projected against Parliament. I did all sorts of things because it was fun. Yeah, I, I saw you, uh, you left them out in various places in London and stuff. Right? Yes, yeah. yep, did all sorts of things. But I feel a long way away from America. And, you know, they're a bit grown up over there and don't really have a sense of humour. Uh, and, so, and so I was just like Googling, thinking, who are the most influential book reading celebs in America? And they came up Gosling, Bill Gates, and a couple of others. And I was sat there for about 50 minutes thinking, I wonder how I could get to them, I wonder how I could get to them. And then I thought, fuck it, I could just Photoshop them. And so badly, I Photoshopped my book into Ryan Gosling's <laughs> And then this picture of Bill Gates came up, Bill Gates' reading list, and he's holding his 10 books for 2019, and I just stuck it in there. And I just tweeted it, and I thought, I thought it was badly done enough that it would be obviously like <laughs> more of an homage, right, than a hoax, or more more funny than a fake. Anyway, it took off. So that by far the most popular post I've ever made. And <laughs> I fucking love it, mate. How, what, but honestly, what better way to be more viral? That's what I thought. It's amazing. <laughs> I got in loads of trouble. And then, did you see the Oprah one? No, I didn't see the Oprah one. <laughs> so, then I found a video of Oprah picking up her favourite book of 2018. And then how she describes it, she's saying it's, it's all about the most important stories in America right now, the them and us, you know, how we've got to stand up for ourselves. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> and so uh, I put it on Fiverr, you know, where you can like hire creatives to do jobs for you. Yeah. And this guy in Pakistan said, yeah, he'll do it. So for $25, he superimposed my book cover on the front. And she's this massive whacking, like, hard back and you know mine's like a little manual and so it looks really funny but and I tagged a few Oprah Winfrey fan clubs and it fucking kicked off it went super viral so good I got attacked by all these Oprah fans telling me that they're going to get Oprah's lawyers (laughs) so how is the launch going in the US it's gone a little bit better since um, since that (laughs) since Ryan Gosling since Ryan Gosling loves it And if anybody here is working with Microsoft or Ryan's office, um, I'm desperately to, keen to send them a book. <laughs> uh, it's going away. I just went out there last week and it was um, it was really anxious, actually, mate, to be honest. You know, like the things, I, I know the topics you talk about. It, it's, I woke up on the Monday morning uh, and went out to my first you know, meeting and then I had a presentation. And there's a little me bowling up Madison Avenue. <laughs> and I just, just, my inner critic really went, Accelerated and was like, "What the mm. fuck are you doing here, you dickhead?" Yeah. I'm like, go back, go back home, you Englishman. He's like, "What are you doing here? Break home to break America, have you? Think you're the fucking Beatles, do you?" <laughs> like, really, really going on in my head. And the first day was, yeah, overwhelming. And it wasn't until I got on the stage and did a talk and it went all right that it kind of came back. So there's just something so daunting about it. And you know, like I say, here I got away with a lot of stuff on my home turf, and there it's, it felt quite scary. Really scary, actually. But so far, so good. Doing all right. There's some good sales and some interesting... Met some really good, interesting people. Was on some good podcasts. Did a couple of TV bits. And I've been invited back out twice. So, you know, books are... They're not like anything else I've ever worked on before. Like any other part of business, usually there's a launch and then you're kind of defined. Books work in a very different way. They're a much more gradual process, yeah. which doesn't really suit my impatience. It's a <laughs> gratification. I'm, lear- I'm learning. I'm learning, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I hope it's a massive success. As I said, it's my favourite book of last year. So, Thanks, man. Um, Why did you like it so much? Uh, oh, so many reasons. You know, I think that it spoke to me because we spoke about the outside we were talking before, that like just being associated with pirates is a cool thing to want to be associated with. I think the way that the book You've got was, some good pirate, pirate-like tats going on here. Yeah, do you know there's, what? There's a whole arm, top to bottom here, listeners. Yeah. Like, right down to the wrist, there's <laughs> skulls, there's swords. It's pretty, it's pirate behaviour. tigers. <laughs> I already know my next... Uh, tattoo in, which will be inspired by no book. way yeah. what's it going to be so the moment I finally take my own advice uh-huh. and take that leap of faith and leave what I'm doing currently and go full time into hopefully into this I'll, I'll get the Jolly Roger yes on my, on my leg yeah yes <laughs> right and do your um, current employers listen to the podcast uh, hopefully not <laughs> no some of them do but I think it's, there's, the writing's on the wall right? 
you know, as soon as I understood the the balance that you've got, this isn't your side hustle. This is your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and the and the job. I'm sure you do brilliantly, and I'm sure your your employees love you. But that's just the launch pad to what comes next, right? I mean, yeah. All of us who are watching what you do are waiting for you to take flight yourself. <laughs> well, hopefully it's soon. But I, th- I think that I had, and I was talking to you before about why I started the podcast, and it was through a lack of fulfilment for yeah. the job that I was doing, and probably having too high expectations for what that lifestyle was going to be. But with now doing this, it's given me the ability to give meaning to that other job. So I, I'm actually enjoying it more now as well because it's providing me with the funds and the ability to, to do this as well. So, um, yeah, so that's been helpful for sure. Interesting, that is. I've been thinking about this a lot, the, the kind of the promise of balance. And even if you're already busy and stressed, but actually including something else in your life gives perspective to that which is challenging. And yeah. some parts of life are just, you know, just they just are functional, aren't they? Yeah. And if you can find the other parts of it, they can make almost the most functional fantastic yeah because it suddenly all fits into place yeah i'm looking forward to this man i'm looking forward to seeing you take flight yeah thank you no um so to talk a little bit more about you then and not just the book because you're not just an author nope you were a i still don't really believe i am an author to be honest <laughs> I, I get introduced as that and i'm always looking over my shoulder so you're the you or you have been the founder of at least 10 startups yes uh, could you talk a little bit about that journey and then talk to kind of who you are today the kind of day-to-day stuff that you're doing with yeah yeah, yeah. the role now it was always kind of there. I had always had this notion of making things. Like I always loved to cook or play Lego or, you know, whatever stage of kind of childhood development, I like the making of stuff, right? Always in my imagination. I was never really one for playing football and, and stuff. I was like off creating things. Mm. And then I started a band with some friends. It's the worst named band on earth. Go on. Fizzy Milk. <laughs> it's disgusting, isn't it? It's like <laughs> just such a bad thought. And, um... And I can't play an instrument to save my life, and I can't sing either. And so I got kicked out of the band pretty quickly. Uh, But they were good friends, and so they said I could be the manager. And I wasn't a very good manager either, but we did put on this one event. And we had a DJ, and we made flyers, and people came. It was like a teenager in Croydon. And some money was made selling beer out of the back of a car. And I think that was was the moment seeing you you can make something, and then there's a payoff. Hmm. And that, that was a turning point for me. How old were you then? 15, 16, yeah. so just going into A-levels, and then I spent, wasted my A-levels, you know, coming up with little projects and ideas and started putting on more events and put on a couple of bigger raves and then one or two DJs and a, and a musician and then a band asked me to manage them. And so I was doing more kind of managing stuff. And then I was making a lot of flyers for all the different events and I taught myself graphic design as a way of making money and that was great. Um, and then I started buying quite a lot of print on behalf of other people. And then a couple of venues asked me to manage them. And then I was touring and traveling and looking after it. It was great. I really enjoyed that sense of putting on an event and getting people in the, in the space. And then uh, basically getting high and dancing till dawn. You know, <laughs> it was fucking great. <laughs> um, but I didn't make any money at it. Um, I was in the wrong side. I was temporarily South London's least successful weed dealer. Um, uh, so I chefed. And I really loved chefing. And that was what paid the bills. And, and putting on raves is how I lost all the money that I made chefing. But the combination taught me that I really liked making things. And I knew there had to be this higher purpose to it all. Um, not that I know what the purpose was, Dancing Till Dawn. But uh, what it turned into was my first real business. So I'd, I'd count the club business as a startup. And my management business was kind of the very beginning of it. But it was Don't Panic, the business that formed off the back of it, which was essentially a promotions agency. So we would sort out your flyers, your design, we'd get it all made, we'd help you fill a club, do whatever it took. Nice, and Don't Panic because you're sorting it all for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then we started giving out flyers for people, uh, and then we made this pack. It was a really cool little magazine, and we were, it was like late 90s, and I was working with Banksy and Shepherd Ferry, and it was, this, it was a very kind of counterculture, anti-corporate statement and yeah. on every single wall in every student hall around the country. Is that before Banksy was big? Yeah, yes, yeah, late 90s, so yeah. just the beginning of, of, of his journey as well. Wow. And so you know who Banksy is? I do. <laughs> very nice, very nice, very nice young man. Uh, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. And then one day I woke up um, in my early 20s about £250,000 in debt. Wow. Because it's been spunky, it was a cash-based business. Uh, we'd kind of reinvigorated a couple of dying print firms by, by pooling all of those club night flyers that we were then sourcing and designing and buying in bulk. And then, you know, we were a cash-hungry business because I was doing all these guys going out, giving out the flyer packs and everything else. And I just didn't know how, what I was doing. I didn't know how I was doing the books or anything. It just all looked really successful. Yeah. Like, literally, that story of overnight success. We had a warehouse. It was all really cool. We were in every single club. 
Yeah, about a quarter of a million pounds worth of debt. Wow. To, principally two or three big firms of printers. And they came down hard and they took computers away and they threatened physical violence. And it was... I mean, they were good to us. They were serious. We made a, a cut a deal. And that's what then... That's what then started my passion for business books and reading. I taught myself basically how to get out of that mess. And we cut a deal where we would give them pennies on every pound that we ordered with them and we traded it back into profitability. And it was the shit that we were in that made me get out of the universe that I'd fallen in love with, nightclubs, record labels. Mm. And I began to discover marketing agencies and brands. And I repitched what we had as a kind of fun fanzine that you could find outside nightclubs. And I started presenting it as a media channel. And mm. pre-social media, it was a way for big brands to get their you know, grubby little mitts on a you know, cool and influential youth generation for their new, you know, this is the dawn of .com. So like last minute was launching or boo.com or all these kind of things. And they were spunking large amounts of money trying to get in the hands of credible youngsters. And that was what we offered. So mm. we turned Don't Panic out of the thing that I loved into more of an agency essentially got it back into profit amazing was there you said that there was a few business books and stuff that kind of helped you through that process and turn it around was there one that stood out uh yeah the the first one i read that really made a difference to me was called what got you here won't get you there okay and you know, the message is pretty clear yeah. and and all the everyone listening who's on that kind of journey you know the enthusiasm and the appetite and everything you know gets you so far and is necessary but then one day something has to shift and there's a maturity and are you a are you a starter or are you a finisher you know these these kind of things and I know definitely that I'm in the starting camp (laughs) and I know when I get bored and I know when I become problematic now but in those days I I didn't really and also the team around you you know Don't Panic Very Much was a group of friends united around fun this stuff that we loved and we weren't necessarily the best most professional team I mean there was excellent individuals and many of them have gone on to do great great things but at that time, in that moment. So I suppose what it really taught me was about tough choices. Mm. And, uh, and one of the tough choices was me deciding to leave. And my, one of my best friends still runs the business now. And it's, it's morphed and morphed again. I think it was the third most awarded agency at Cannes uh, Festival of Advertising last year. So it's doing, nice. it's doing amazing things. And he's won a BAFTA for the TV shows they've made as a spin-off. So he's totally made it fly. Yeah. But realizing that I wasn't the right person for that business then and, and the new idea and ambition I'd had and, and no so yeah that book was mainly about tough choices I think mm. that sounds awesome you know it sounds like it probably would speak to something else that I think a lot of people have problems with is like when you get a little bit of success and then you get comfortable there and you kind of sit in that yeah. area because it's really difficult actually and it's quite tiring to constantly be pushing and constantly progressing and getting better at what you're doing and a lot of people will then sometimes have a certain amount of success and then maybe sit there for a little bit and be comfortable I think it's really good to talk about that. There's no doubt. And I think there's, there's too much kind of hero worship of the hustle and the bollocks that comes with it. Because the truth is, this is exhausting. Because mm. you are, you know, it's the paradox is that you should be permanently outside of your comfort zone. If you're not, like, feeling like you're drowning slightly, then you're probably not pushing it. Mm. And if you're in your comfort space, then you're definitely not pushing it. So that means that success is dependent on you permanently being in a state of anxiety. Yeah. I looked this up once and I think entrepreneurs are in the top five most stressful jobs in the world. Those involved in an active conflict or combat zone, high performance athletes, probably like first, first responders or, um, and then entrepreneurs because we're permanently in this state of advanced chemical release to our body, which is only supposed to happen when we're attacked by a saber toothed tiger or something historically, genetically, uh, yet we encourage it every single day. Yeah. And it has a very detrimental effect to everything from your teeth to your sex drive, people, so you need to watch out. <laughs> but it is predicated, you know, our success is slightly predicated on it. So I think that whilst there's a lot of you know, really positive conversations at the moment around both mental health and resilience and an awareness of this, I think there's a deeper conversation to be had as well. The starting point is you've got to accept that there are some sacrifices to be made yeah. and know which ones you are and aren't. Yeah. You know, I've lost relationships, good ones, important ones. I've compromised on family. There's things I will regret forever. And I've put some of these entrepreneurial en- endeavors first, and some of those I will regret. And some of them I accept now are the cost of doing this. Mm. And I think at least if you go into this knowing that there's going to be sacrifice and accepting it, then at least you can avoid the most difficult poison of all of this, which is resentment. Mm. That's amazing. I think a lot of people go into it without realizing the amount of sacrifice you need to make. I think it's true. And I don't mean that like, I do not mean that in an aggrandized version, like, yeah, look at me, what I've said. No, I mean loss. 
I mean, genuinely not. There's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many things you can do. There's only so many meaningful relationships you can have. If you're going to really sell something, if you're going to put your all into it, it's a relationship of, of no, you know, this book was definitely, my wife would say, the test to this, and I felt, <laughs> felt as well. But writing a book was like having an affair. You know, you fall in love with these things that we try and make. They're, they're, there's a real purpose to it. So there is, of course, a, a sacrifice, a compromise. Yeah. And I think it's just, I think it's, it's healthy to discuss that as we go into them. Yeah, amazing. And that's why people really need to be sure it's what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. But also know what you will and won't. So I now know that I, wouldn't, I won't sacrifice my daughters. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm only a relatively recent father. Um, and whilst I have had previous relationships that have had to suffer as a consequence of it, and that was an unconscious choice, and I blamed other things or other people, or I didn't take responsibility for it, and I let those relationships suffer. Now I know what is a conscious and unconscious choice, and I won't, you know, I won't miss sports day, I won't miss, you know, so you learn, and I think that's fine, as long as you know the sacrifices that you will and won't make, and so that means I have to make a sacrifice at work, so there is an idea that I haven't launched, you know, there is a, a delay on the second book, or whatever mm. else I should have done, because there's no fucking way that I'm going to miss picking <laughs> up Scarlet on Friday. Yeah, amazing, I love that. Okay, so to talk about you today Mm -hmm. with Liberty and the kind of day-to-day role that you're doing away from when you're an author, what does that look like? So uh, Liberty was what came next after Don't Panic. The idea was a youth marketing agency, so taking everything that I learned from Don't Panic, everything that I got a bit sick of in in having to trade Don't Panic essentially out of debt. I did a lot of deals that I didn't really love. And so the idea dawned on me of could, was ethical marketing an oxymoron? Could you have a, a marketing agency that would help brands sell their stuff, but also help tackle social issues? You know, could you could you view your audience as your opportunity and as your responsibility? And could we counter some of the negative outputs of big mm. business um, in a positive way and kind of re-engineer business? Really, I saw us as the catalytic converter of the dirty engine of capitalism at the time. And there's, you know, I, I love business. I love I love brands. You know, but is there a way that they don't have to pollute? as they create you know can you have trainers that aren't made in sweatshops and are made of recycled plastics and we were asking these questions in 2001 and obviously the answer is fucking yes you can make super you know the the most successful trainer on earth is made from recycled plastics now which one's that nike flyknit oh yeah best performance trainer there is and there's a really undersold story of sustainability but if it was a business in its own right it would still be a fortune 500 it'd be the most ethical business on earth probably Mm. You know, from Nike to Tesla, there's no shortage now of stories of, of this. But in 2001, it was sounded more harebrained than it does now. And I was 24 when we started Liberty, so I had all the naivety that's required, right? And total fucking arrogance. To go, yeah, fucking, we're going to not just start a business; we're going to change the face of business. <laughs> but because it was so entrenched in youth marketing, and our methodology is to open up our space to young people, we're sat here. In our warehouse in the middle of Brixton, yeah. uh, there's about 50 full-time staff at Liberty, and a successful day for us is when there's more young people in the office than, than adults. And if anybody's listening to this and you're in your early 20s or, or late teens, you can come and access free space. You just book yourself in, sign up, Amazing. get part of the network. There's free training, talks, seminars, work experience, opportunities, access to get real-life exposure to client briefs, all sorts of stuff. And I can say as well, like coming in to meet you here today, like just coming in, the music was playing, like the vibe is really, really cool, isn't it? It's an amazing vibe in here. It's just, you know, it's a special place. And we do, our clients currently are PlayStation, Netflix, you know, the, some of the coolest brands on earth. Um, but the really cool thing about this place is that we are seen by the young people who come here to get experience as a transformation engine. And you see guys just rock it after their time with us. Mm. Um, but because we're so entrenched in, in supporting and backing and being credible to young people, I'd always joked, I thought, that when I was 40, I'd have to leave. And when you're 24, you know, 40 seems as far away <laughs> as death, like the apocalypse or something. Um, anyway, it fucking turns out it wasn't a joke. <laughs> so two years ago... Uh, I was shown the door and I had been preparing the team that I knew were going to take over and so I began the process of stepping back and was, I did, was that your decision? yeah I, I, again I think it might have been in, I'm not sure in which book but it, I read about founder syndrome and founder syndrome is just very very real one day you're no longer going to be the best person to run the thing you start mm. what got you here won't get you there yeah God, that was a good book <laughs> um and I think, I think the, the lesson of that book is there is a moment, I think, in all of our journeys, right, where we stop making lists about what we're going to do and we begin to realise that the most important question is what we're not going to do. 
And that's really hard because there's a sense of belief, you know, for anyone's listening who writes to-do lists every day that they never achieve, right? <laughs> what, why, what is that about? You know, I still do it. And when we begin to say these are the things I'm not going to do, the sacrifices that I will make to allow myself to do the things that I'm going to do, we're, we're beginning to make the choices that are necessary of us as real leaders. And choosing to let go of liberty, this thing that I'd started and run for 15 years that has won business of the year and social enterprise of the year and agency of the year and you know I just loved it and we've seen thousands and thousands of young people change their lives and so my identity was so tied up in it but I also knew deep down that for it to evolve it needed to you know not have this guy who doesn't understand Snapchat you know <laughs> nobody understands Snapchat, nobody understands Snapchat. <laughs> yeah but somebody running a youth agency probably needs it yeah oh that's amazing I absolutely love that Okay, I could talk about that for ages, but I really want to get into the book. Okay, okay. So, before we actually talk about the book, and one of the reasons, and you asked why I love the book so much, and it's broken down really well, I think it's written really, really well, and I'm someone who really likes history as well, always liked it in school, and started to read around it outside of school as well when I was younger. But it's written nicely, because you, you do learn a little bit about pirates and the history of that, and then it links very, very nicely into the modern day. So before we go into... Excellent review. Can I, get, can I get you to put that on Amazon, please? Yeah, absolutely. Five stars. <laughs> um, but before we go into the book and those kind of five parts, which, again, resonated with me really, really strongly, could you talk about how we've been represent or how we've been shown pirates uh, and kind of yeah. de- debunk that? Yeah, us? yeah. I mean, I, I, I've got, you know, I, I can't pretend I, I love that as well. I, I'm... I also really enjoyed history at school, and but I'm not academic. I didn't make it to university, and I'm quite dyslexic, and it was just like... Uh, so for me, doing the research and going and reading and, and listening and finding out about pirates and then discovering that I'd found something that wasn't common knowledge, mm. man, it was exhilarating. It was like what learning really should be. You know when you do, you find something, and you're like, what? What's that? And you, mm. It was just such a joyous experience. Um, and if things pan out, I'd love to go and study again now. So we think of pirates largely informed by Captain Hook and Jack Sparrow, probably the two most famous pirates of of contemporary culture. But therein we have to ask ourselves this weird question. Like you said at the beginning, you've always loved pirates. Hands up everybody who's listening, who's always loved pirates? Uh See, most of us. And what's that about? We've got this kind of association What we know that they kidnapped they murdered, they tortured, they raped, you know, all that stuff is on record. So what other, but we also know there's this weird thing, like they had this kind of crew mentality and they were kind of like romantic in a way. So who else do we have that relationship in history? Like anyone, you know, what other murderous rogues with quasi-socialist leanings? My my six-year-old, well, soon to be six-year-old, has been to numerous pirate-themed fancy dress parties. Totally, totally acceptable. You know, if she was invited to a Pablo Escobar party, we'd never let her go. (laughs) You know, send them all down, dressed as Pablo. You know, it's a, it's a weird thing. So I think deep down we know there's something more to it. And once I started scratching at the surface, very, very quickly, uh, there's these comparisons between now and now and then, 300 years ago. The, the pirates were truly the millennials of the 18th century, right? The average age was 28. They were locked out of their future, much like millennials can, can feel today. There was a very self-interested establishment who'd locked them out of their future, who were only really interested in their own self-preservation. There was a backdrop of international interconnected conflict that was so confusing, nobody really knew who were the goodies and the baddies anymore. Um, there was mass redundancy threatened through massive innovation. There was a huge change of disruption in industry. You know, there was a lot of similarities going on. And these guys, rather than put up with a broken situation, as many of us feel like today, they decided to not just break the rules, they decided to rewrite the rules. And so they set out in these structures, these pirate organizations, and they wrote rules that challenged everything they'd inherited. So instead of really deeply stratified and abusive, you know, jobs in the merchant navy, where you were lucky if you ever got paid, and certainly there was no chance of advancement, they created really, really democratic structures with fair pay systems with um, leadership opportunities for for women and people of ethnic minorities you know in fact you have people of color as as famous captains amongst the pirate communities they developed a workplace uh, compensation scheme because they knew they worked in dangerous environments and if they if you lost a leg man you'd be out for the count right but on board a pirate ship you'd get 800 pieces of eight which Mm. you could retire on nowhere at the time had this kind of system in place they knew that they were highly skilled professionals and that they wanted a, a, an opportunity for some self-determination and a voice. So they created a, a system where every pirate on board would have a say in the strategy. 
and that the captains, instead of bullying them as they'd done in the Navy or the Merchant Navy, uh, they could be outvoted at any minute. A pirate captain was so democratically overseen by his crew that at any point they could be deposed. Hmm. So they were these... They were these so innovative. They were like the unicorns of today that we talk about coming out of Silicon yeah. Valley and wherever else. Is the only way you should think about pirates and how they were looked at at the time. Yeah. Social revolutionaries, working class heroes, these incredible new organisations. This is when workers' rights was an illegal thing to discuss. If you were caught discussing workers' rights in England at the time, you'd be, you'd be imprisoned for it. And here were organisations that had set out, not only done it, but built themselves fantastically successful and profitable ships based on these principles of fairness, yeah. justice and liberty. And then they tie it all up in this incredible brand. Like, and their brand was so... It was, it was unarguably the first global brand designed deliberately to go viral around the world, which had a fundamental singular message, which was surrender or die. <laughs> we can discuss the morality of that, but um, it drove their business model. They were profitable, not because they were the best fighters or they had the biggest cannons. They were, of course, the Navy and the Armada. They beat everybody hands down for such a long period of time because everyone was piss scared of them because their brand was so fundamentally strong. But what it meant, some pirate historians and pirate economists will argue, they were one of the most peaceful seafarers on the sea at the time. Amazing. It's so good. I really, really like it. And one of the reasons why, and you spoke at the beginning there about how, you know, kids go to parties dressed as pirates. And for some reason, we have a love of pirates and we have this kind of romanticised idea of who they are but I think ultimately we look at them and see people who have been true to themselves being who they wanted to be and I think deep down we all want that for ourselves which is why we hold them in high esteem I haven't thought about it like that but yeah I like that I think there is I think and there's, that, there's, a, there's a phrase now isn't there about being your best self yeah and there is something in that there's this, um, there's this amazing quote I found from uh, the Lords of Trade was an extension of government at the time, you know, before there was an empire and, and, and colonisation took place. So they were protecting England's trade relationships around the world. Yeah. And they would protect them violently with the army. And so they were sent to go and ascertain the pirate threat because by this time in 1718, the pirates had, again, not many people know, taken their organising principles off ships and onto land and they'd formed a colony. And it was a proto-democratic republic, you know, with, filled with these principles. And the report comes back to report to London in, in the Lords of Trade to say the truth about the pirate threat is not just the rum and the women and the stories that we know. It's the camaraderie, mm. the cooperation, the care for the injured you know, and this opportunity to, for self-direction. So being yourself is truly, you're absolutely right, truly what they represent. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Do you think you would have been a pirate? I would like to think so. Yeah, <laughs> my I like there's a there's one called Black Sam Bellamy who I like to chime in with uh, because he has these these incredible eloquent arguments against the state and against big business and against the church and he represents the individual just just tears them down uh, whilst kind of repainting the way things can be. I think yeah, if there was any that I'd like to be, probably him. Amazing. Okay, so the book's broken down into kind of like five. Mm-hmm. key areas right so there's the rebel rewrite reorganize regist re- retell so i'd like to talk about a couple of those sections if that's okay sure did you notice the pirate joke in there uh no go on what's the section called what, what are the what letters they all start with oh. <laughs> the five r's <laughs> very good I'm, I'm disappointed i didn't pick up on that <laughs> <laughs> so I think the one that definitely resonated with me the most was the rebel and the breaking rules bit. Yep. I absolutely love that bit. And yep. I read that, that piece twice just because it was Excellent. so good. So you talked about picking stupid rules and, and breaking those rules. So if you could just talk a little bit more to that section, that'd be great. Mm, yeah. So when I say rules here, I mean, I mean conventions, I mean social norms, I mean habits. I mean, the stuff around us. I'm not necessarily tearing down like regulations or, or laws that are designed to protect us. I mean, much more the... You know, if I could sum it up in a line, I think the biggest mistake we can make is to believe that the way things are is the way things have to be. And in most organisations and cultures and societies and even in families, um, most of the rules that we follow are a matter of either precedent or perspective. Mm-hmm. That's how so-and-so used to do it, or that's how so-and-so thinks we should do it. They're not actually carefully designed in the best interests of you, dear listener, and you know they're not. You know you know what how it goes, and you know the stuff that you talk about in the pub about the way things should be at work and those bloody idiots and then you know we all come to work and we we just do the way it's supposed to do 
So I am advocating a daily exercise in rule breaking, taking just one of those stupid things, one of those staffed principles. Why do we do it like that? Instead of saying, why do we do it like that and carrying on doing it, start doing it the way you think it should be done. Hmm. Just break it. We'll just say no. Or even at the very, very least, just saying why. Why the fuck? And getting a better answer and seeing if there is one. Uh, and I've, I've tested this exercise again because lots of people, ooh. And, and people would rather do something stupid uh, on a daily basis than, than question it because we're so hardwired to follow yeah. this. But I then challenge that the only thing worse than a stupid rule is the people following it. And then when you push it up the line, and now I'm in a place of independence and ability to do so, I can then trace it all the way back up to the CEO. So, so why do we do budgeting like this? Or why do we have meetings in this way? Get to the CEO, they're like, well, I don't know, that sounds stupid. Yeah. Probably because that's the way Bob said it, you know, four years ago when he was in charge. And actually, you find that most of these rules are like the paper walls. And once you push through them, not only do you discover your chance to rewrite them, but you discover your power as well. And then standing up to some of these things, I think, is one of the most important acts any of us can do. And I call it professional rule breaking, right? To reassure you all listening, professional rule breaking is, is a way of redrafting your work experience you know it's a way of beginning to set out and take ownership of that which is around you so you don't have to put up with the petty bullshit anymore and it is a risk but the success measure that i think of in professional rule breaking is nearly getting fired once a year (laughs) and i mean it by nearly because that means you're pushing it close enough but you're playing your cards right so as you're not to get fired but that probably means that you are leaving a massive wake of change that comes after you yeah Incredible. I think it's so good. And I don't think it has to be a rule, perhaps in business. Mm-hmm. It could be your own, one of your own rules. I think I, I, there's a lot of things that my dad used to say to me when I was a kid growing up that have stuck with me and I think changed the way that I view the world today. One of them was um, shy boys don't get kissed. So sometimes we put these kind of barriers around ourselves. Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. I, I could have read the Be More Pirate book and thought, oh, Sam will never want to do a podcast episode with me. Yeah. But, you know, if you, don't, if you don't try and break that limitation you have on yourself, then you never know. The, the, for the, from what I've seen and listened to of all the people that have got in touch with me, the biggest rule that anybody can break is freedom from their own self-imposed limitations. Hmm. And, fund, and, and every time I, I'm running it as a workshop or uh, the most interesting question that I asked you, you, you know, what, what do you, what's getting in your way then? You know, what's getting in the way of you taking flight with the whole next thing that comes yeah. uh, if you really ask yourself that question it typically boils down to fear Yeah. and then if you really get into that a little bit more most of that fear is projected and so then you're being scared of things that don't exist and we all know that doesn't make any sense when you put that next to the comparison of the, what you could do or the greatness of your idea or the excitement you might have then one stepping stone in that direction is breaking a rule and realising that you're still standing yeah. realising that you know things are fine possibly even things are better so I'm, I'm advocating that professional rule breaking is the next essential 21st century skill you know we, we're in lots of our organizations are slowed down there's such bad habits you know and the, the the need for change is so fast now we can have all the fucking transformative disruption away days that we like right but actually going back to your desk and doing something differently so this is a it's a leadership principle professional rule breaking gives you empowers you to challenge things around you yeah amazing and then that resets the standard you set yourself for what you can do yeah yeah well the surprise of the big surprise for me and all my studies of pirates and i talk about this in the book is that they were so accountable Hmm. you know the, the, the last people you'd think of as being accountable they were deeply accountable to one another they were completely united and they were accountable to themselves because they were no longer following the rules. They could no longer complain about the man. They could no longer bitch about their <laughs> shit, you know, not to swear too excessively. Because they'd set their own rules. So the only people they had to, to look to were themselves. And this yeah. is part of the liberation of some rule breaking. Because you step into a place where actually the spotlight's only on you, Jack. Yeah. It's so good. I love it so much. Okay. So to talk about the fifth part which is a retail yes which was the one that probably i took the most away from the other bits resonate with me amazingly but the retail bit is so big because storytelling is so so important for us today yeah and we can all tell our own stories so easily because of social media and technology advances and all these things so could you talk a little bit more about the storytelling i know you talked about how pirates built their brand and all that sort of thing so so what i really like they they did was this um you know they really did they did this deliberately they built the brand you know they're 
they, 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 they took on the kind of fancy dress and they, they, they did do a lot of makeup and they had bands on board their ships. You know, they really went to town with it and the whole skull and crossbones, they all had their own individual take on it. Some had a dancing skeleton, some had skeleton drinking blood. So they, they made it theatrical, but it was very, very designed uh, with this underlying message of surrender because that's how they drove their profit model it was n- there's no no economic rationale for them getting into a fight they didn't have the resources to recover or replenish they didn't have any repairs opportunity you know and, and they would be outgunned and outmanned and outmaneuvered in a straight fight mm. so ultimately this this terrifying stories and, and they let the gossip do its job you know of course there were some hideous acts but by far the minority of, of, of pirates and they let their reputation do the talking and they just fanned the flames um, and so as I you know, looked at that as much as possible there was a couple of really good examples a Blackbeard arguably the most famous pirate yeah. he was so dedicated to this that he would set light to the ends of his beard and his, and his hair with sulfurous fuses <laughs> so that when he arrived on your ship you know he looks like something straight from hell and people just wet themselves <laughs> um, but then a couple of historians will argue there's no record of Blackbeard ever killing anyone and I love that because it demonstrates the extremes of the plurality and I think in those extremes is a really useful thing. I think in storytelling and in marketing currently, the the norm is to go towards your favoured audience. You know, it's, it's partly what fuels the filter bubble. You've got a great podcast that will definitely appeal to a you know an entrepreneurial audience. So let's go there. And what I drew from the pirates was what we started to call at Liberty the the lion's den. So who's gonna who's gonna hate this story? Who's going to really rail against you? Who's going to think this is shit and call you out and you can start you can start a fight with, you can start a debate with, where you can start making a noise that's going to go even further, exactly like the pirates did, and take a little flame and turn it into a fire. Um, there's a great example at Liberty. Recently, we were doing a piece of work for the Girl Guides, who've done an incredible job internally reorganising themselves to make themselves tech-savvy uh, organisation responding to the needs of teenage girls in the 21st century. They really have, but their external reputation is still very much like the queen in knitting. <laughs> um, we made a really great piece of uh, digital video content for them, and originally the plan was to go to, you know, a number of social media platforms would really get behind that. And in the end, they went to, uh, they went to Lad Bible, you know, which is becoming more progressive, but arguably, you know, is, is better known for laddish banter and the home of casual everyday sexism. And so to drop something there, of course the response was casual everyday sexism. And for 24 hours, they just got torrents of abuse. Uh, and then the community that, that were supposed to find it then discovered it, and they came back in its defense. And what could have been a very nice video that got a few thousand views, was just a fantastic video, it got millions of views, and oh. not only sparked the debate that was necessary, but proved its bloody point by starting a fight to begin with. Hmm, amazing. The lines then. The lion's den. Yeah. Take your story into the lion's den. Awesome. See what you get out of it. So that's probably a good segment onto talking about things like obstacles and challenges, which we talk a lot about on this podcast. So I know you spoke in the book about how often pirates can be like forty-five to one yeah. against. Yeah, yeah. Um, Huge. What have you learned from your research with pirates and from the businesses you've had yourself about coming up against obstacles and how you can approach them, and then possibly what you what you take away and learn from them as well. So the. Yeah, 45 to 1 was about what they positioned out. The pirate community, they think, was around 2,500 souls at any given time. So much, much smaller than I think most of us would think. And I think they did what, what certainly any, uh, where success lies. And I think it's, it kind of goes back to that thing of not necessarily writing the list being the most important thing that you have to do. It's writing the list of things that you don't do. Mm. And in business, what I am certain, sure of, after 20 years of this is the success of a business is down to its leader's ability to focus on the rocks. You know, if this is a stream and and, and the the way to success is to flow with the stream of opportunity around you, um, the big blocks, the big fucking boulders, if you take them out of the way, you increase the current and everything moves faster. If you just focus on the pebbles, then, you know, forget about it. You know, nothing's going to... You work really, really hard to get them moved and just as much pain as anything else. But if you just focus on the big things, the important things, the others will, will, will move themselves. Or if they're not, then, then they're not that important. And it's the hardest thing to do because it goes right back to the beginning. It's the exhausting choice. Mm. And <laughs> it really is the... It's why leadership isn't a medal and it's not a book or it's not a, another Gary Vee video or, <laughs> or a glossy Instagram post or anything else. You know, there's good in all of those things, especially in Gary Vee. But leadership is in you. 
and you and everybody listening, you know, even if you have a team of none and, you know, you're at the very beginning of your career, that difficult bit in the morning when you decide to show up and that difficult bit in the day when you decide not to do the bullshit but to do the one hardest thing, pick up the phone or go and see that person or say, stand up and say what needs to be said. That's the leadership that's required. And so the pirates knew this. They didn't fanny around at the edges. They weren't caught up like we are, you know, arguing about the identity politics of it or whatever else. You know, they knew what they fought for fundamentally and they knew what they died for fundamentally. And in that gap, they found success. And certainly in my history, the most painful hideous moments of having to make people redundant you know we, we once had such a grim downsizing period a brutal year a few years ago and, and went to nearly a half of the, the size of the firm and lost some of my dearest friends people who fought alongside you and mm. all the horrors that anybody listening you know I hope nobody has to go through that but, but most of us will in some way every single time that's happened if you look back it's when we were trying to do too many things and similarly every single time the business has grown or we've done really great work is when we've been singularly focused. So picking the big things and fighting those fights and winning them is is the game. Mm. Amazing. I think it's such an important point to talk about. I think that I'm rereading Think and Grow Rich at the moment, actually. Yeah, and it talks about ultimately comes down to desire and knowing what you want. Mm-hmm. And it's something that not many people know, no. to be honest. And you said they're the pirates, knew fundamentally what they would live for and what they would die for. And yep. I think if we can be more kind of direct and clear on what we're doing and where we're going then we're going to win well I think there's a, there's a question I ask in one of the challenge sections in the book what three values would you fight for hmm. and it's because the book takes you on a journey to creating your own pirate code and I think in there there's actually there's more value in that question about values than I thought there was firstly because very few people can name three values yeah and I've asked you know I've asked thousands of people now and very rarely well we can ask you can you name three values that you would fight, fight, literally fight, risk violence for? Me? Yeah. Um, and you listening whilst he works it out. <laughs> three values. Uh, honesty? Yes. You'd Low fight rate. for it. You'd fight for honesty. Yeah. If, you, if you were confronted with someone lying, you'd be willing to take it toe to toe. Yeah. Uh, loyalty? Okay. And then, not sure, really sure how to, how you'd explain the third one, but... I suppose what's right, like, probably a terrible example, but I was on the tube a few months ago and I saw someone filming a girl who wasn't wearing too really? much clothes. And, uh, I Mum skirt situation. Yeah, and I couldn't sit there and let it happen, so I had to go and say something. But I don't know what the word would be for that. Well, who did you say it to, him or her? To him. Right. And what did he do? Uh, denied it. Did he? Yeah. Fuck her. Yeah, and then he got off on the same stop at me and I called him out again. Well done, you. Okay, good answers. Most people don't come up with three. Most people really struggle with it. And I'd be, you know, if, if you're listening, let us know. I'd love to, I, I love to, I think this is so, so interesting because it gets, the reason for asking the question is when it comes to the boulder or when it comes to this is a difficult day or when it comes to what do I, what do I do with this stuff or you're put in a difficult position. If you know the values that you start from, it informs your decisions. And that's yeah. why the pirates were such effective decision-making units because they saw values as this, the, the bedrock of their decision-making. And even though they were dispersed teams internationally and they were relatively small units, about 80 people per team, their whole community moved as one when they needed to because they were all absolutely aligned on fundamentals. Most of our organisations work in completely the upside-down version of this. We have values written on the wall that we all forget what they are. You know, The values of this business are... Can you name the values of Salesforce? Nope. <laughs> There you, um, there you go. And this is a trust. Set, this is a salesman for Salesforce. Trust, <laughs> trust. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who writes trust in seven foot high letters on the walls of their business can't be trusted. <laughs> but I bet there's a really great internet, and I bet there's all sorts of other you know there's other ways of us organising ourselves, and we struggle. Well, why don't we all engage with this? I think I think we're all upside down. A lot less, a lot more freedom to work shit out for yourself and a lot more clearer, but these are the three things we stand for and you can't fuck with. Mm. You give people much more autonomy, a chance for self-direction, to work stuff out for themselves, but there's some fundamental principles. And that, I think, helps with the, the mindset, which will only focus on the boulders that are required. To be yeah. Oh, I love it so much, Sam. It's amazing. I'm interested to know, it's just one that's come into my head while we've been speaking there. What happens to you when you act in a way that goes against your values and your principles? Because we can't always do it it, you know, everyone makes mistakes and things happen. How, how do we deal with that? 
when you fuck up, you have to fix up, I think is what I've learned. There's nothing wrong with fucking up. You know, I, I think there's a danger, there's too much kind of, there's a lot of talk around failure, which I think is glib, and we don't always mean it. You know, failure is not great. It's horrible to go through it. And yes, of course, there's lessons. And if you, if you make a fucking mistake and you do it again, then there's a real problem. Um, but if you fuck up, that's natural. You just have to make sure that you fix up. And sometimes that's the worst bit. Like, you know what you've done and having to relive it and apologize or deal with it or pay someone back or whatever it is, make good on it. It's going to take up time and energy and resources. And actually, it's better just to fucking turn around and blame them. Sod you, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> Fix up. Fix up. Man up. Deal, deal with it. Stand up for, for what it is. Um, it's the only way. And, and in that, you retain your integrity. Um, and in that, it means that no matter what the mistake or costs that you've suffered, you can then truly learn from. Mm. Okay, so it comes back to like taking action, really, doing something about it. Yeah, yeah, taking responsibility for it. And I think yeah. action is definitely key to this whole book. I, I, I've done enough. I've, I've taken my last ever gig of being the inspirational speaker. Mm-hmm. I think we've, we've, we've reached peak inspiration, and now I think that talk minus action equals shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that. That could be the title of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, it's not mine. I, I saw a presentation with that in it online. It's great. It's a great line, but I, I subs- subscribe to it wholly. Yeah, okay. So this podcast is called Take Flight. It's about following your passion, going after your goals. It could be seen as quite a morbid thing to say, but such a high percentage of us go to the grave with that song still in us. We haven't acted on the things that we wish we would have done. What would you say to people who are wanting to take a leap of faith but currently listening to that internal resistance? I think that's a really good question. I, my dad died when I, I he was forty two, and mm. I'm forty two this year. Yeah. And um, I was five, and my daughter's five, and so the sense of morbidity is really with me. And I look at her and think, "Fuck, you know, that's, that's as much of me as he saw." And I look at me, and I don't think that I'm old. Whereas I assumed that he must have just been old, right, and died. Yeah. And I couldn't tell you what he thought. Couldn't tell you the song that was in him that he never wrote. Couldn't tell you what he thought was funny or what he worried about or his intentions. Or 95% of your day isn't going to be here. I can tell you what he did. I can tell you about his actions. Hmm. I can tell you about the mark he left. I can tell you about what remains. And everything else disappears to dust. And that that I think answers your question directly because the the morbidity then becomes a motivator mm. you know if I was to die now they'll never remember or care what I thought they will remember what I did they'll have these businesses to if there's a lasting impact of those the lives that they touched the people that will remember those facts they'll have the book that's dedicated to them and they'll know who I was and what I did the actions that I took the change that I affected and so it's really easy to spend days and months worrying or thinking about the thing you're going to do. And it's not as easy just to do it, but it's not as hard as you think either. Hmm. And what remains, I think, is what counts, what stays in your head. Sorry to say this, it doesn't count. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. It's, it's funny, actually, you're saying that because you spoke about the skull. Hmm. That's to represent uh, the stoic saying of memento mori. Oh, yes. So how... Marcus Aurelius, like the most powerful, yeah, probably one of the most powerful men of all time, mm. used to have someone follow him around and say, Memento Mori, which translated means remember you're mortal. So when he was walking through the streets and everyone was saying, oh, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're this, that, and the other, he had someone reminding him that he's mortal and one day he's going to die. He's not as amazing as everyone's making out. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, and maybe that's his, you know, like you, what was it you said earlier on when we were talking about uh, some of the difficult things you've suffered that sound very hard and, and you said actually maybe it's a blessing and I thought that was that was a you know profound way of turning that around and maybe in a way that's my my father's gift to me in a sense that I value it I think I think the greatest tragedy of possible is a life half-lived hmm. and the cruel joke of that tragedy is that you only realize it when you're running out of time but you can work it out, right? We can all see that one coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to suddenly find yourself a bit too late really realising what you haven't done and then have to deal with it? Or can you see that probably coming? You yeah. know, Do you need someone walking around telling you you're going to die? <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> For all of his smarts, you know, you can do that yourself. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, okay, so I know you spoke about one earlier, but 
who is your favourite pirate or pirate? Have you got one or two? And then if you could just give us, could be a little bit of a weird question, but I know there's so much that we can be looking into here in the city in London and places we can go to learn more about pirates. What, what could we do? Yeah. Um, my favourite of all the pirates actually is Anne Bonny. Okay. Um, and I, her, I dedicate quite a lot of time to her chat, her story in the book. My editor tried to get me to cut it and I said, you wait till you read it. And then, well, yeah, fair enough. It does, it does deserve to be a movie. It's just so good. Really? She's just she's just a legend. Um, <laughs> and she represents all of the pirate ideals, but then kind of more so because whilst they were rebelling against uh, the way things were and, and beginning to indicate the new way things could be, she was doing it more so because there weren't many female pirates. So she was even a rebel amongst pirates, which is saying something. <laughs> but this is the early 1700s, right? So women were generally considered not just to be of lesser capacity, but also capability uh, and intelligence. So there she is, leading, you know, with bravery uh, the f- from the front, you know, into battle, pirate teams. Um, and that meant that her story then travels the world. You know, the, the, the proto-feminist literary circles of London are just beginning the writings that are going to begin to inform the suffragettes. Hmm. And yet here's Anne Bonny, you know, inspiring them and inspiring many others. And some think her image goes on to inspire Christian Delacroix, who paints the Lady Liberty leading the brave which is the iconic image of Le Miserable and which in turn is thought to perhaps have inspired the Statue of Liberty itself so some of the greatest icons of female liberty and equality and and power and you know potentially come down to this 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 one woman and what she stood for at the time fighting a you know pirate fight for fairness amazing yeah I think she's a, she's just a she's one day there'll be a Netflix original just on Anne Bonnie yeah. I'm certain sure of it Oh, awesome. And if you're listening, anyone at Netflix, I'm available for consultancy. <laughs> okay, amazing sound. So I think because you've got a call in about 12 minutes. Yes. We do the same three questions at the end of every episode, so I thought we'd dive into those now. Great. So the first of these three is, is there anything in particular that you've experienced or discovered recently that you're excited about? I am thinking a lot about criminality. And it's come out of this idea of professional rule breaking and how far does it go. And I'm really interested by the paradox that we find ourselves in. So Facebook got a fine of 500,000 euros for what is ostensibly treason. Mm-hmm. Treason. You know, one of the, the last hangable offence. And I find that really interesting. We find ourselves in a place where it's perfectly legal to profit at the expense of others, yet we routinely, 50% of young offenders in this country are from ethnic minorities. 50%. So we're in a really interesting place where there's an um, axiom of what's right and wrong and where legality and criminality have missed step with morality. And I think it's where I want to go with my next book amazing which may or may not be called be more gangster as a result of this and and what's happening really when you push right to the edge of the informal how come the narcotraffic gangs of mexico can ravage that country to shit and learn from walmart their distribution strategies yet we can't get a handle on them you know what, what what's going on with it how come you know the smart entrepreneur is about to make a fortune out of the final decriminalization of marijuana yet we can't have a grown-up conversation about drugs how come innocent people are still trafficked all around the world so that the the money that gangsters make on it is laundered in the institutions of the financial tradings of london and then still we are just about able to keep step with businesses that threaten you know the lifeblood of democracy what the fuck so i'm really interested in a more philosophical understanding about legality and criminality. And if all legality is set by precedence, how do we reset the bar on this? That sounds incredible. Be more gangster. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> okay, so the second one of these three... I don't, I don't have a publisher yet, by the way, just in case there's any publishers listening to this. the first time I've said that one out loud. <laughs> sounds like a great idea. Sounds like my new fe- second favourite book. Excellent. <laughs> um, so the second of these three is, if you had to give every listener one piece of advice of a daily habit or routine to incorporate into their life that would drive their performance forward, what would that one thing be? This might sound annoying depending on how you're feeling right now, hmm. but you can choose your mood. You can always choose your mood. It doesn't matter. This, this whole idea of so-and-so did this to me or, or, or they made me feel like that. It's not true. You choose your mood. Hmm. When you walk into the next room, meeting, opportunity, encounter, date, whatever the fuck it is, you choose your mood. 
if you let everything come with you from a bad day or the worries about what's coming, then you're choosing that. And if you decide to let that temporarily go and be the you you want to be in that meeting, then you're choosing a mood. And it's a choice that everybody has. To deny it is to deny yourself. Mm-hmm. Hard as it is, everyone has the capacity to do it. And if you can get in touch with that and you can begin to work it, I promise you it gets easier and it will become a something you will thank me for as much as I thank uh, Sarah Milnro, the coach who gave that to me, that you can cho- genuinely, genuinely choose your mood. Okay, that's awesome. So how do we do it? Is it like a case of taking a deep breath and just like being conscious about it? Or? Yeah, it's consciousness and self-awareness. Yeah. Okay. You know, and you know, I don't know what was going on before for you before you came in. The only thing you said was you're exhausted, but <laughs> you haven't been like that with me. You totally have been high energy, really engaging, got me to really think about my art. You know, you totally did it. Yeah. You know, demonstrate. I'm having a right fucking shit time at the moment. Out of this, I've got to go and see some lawyers right after this. Really? I'm really excited by this. I was really privileged to be asked to be on. I want this to sound great, so you just fucking choose. You know, yeah. you sharp, you choose your mood. Yeah. Of course, life is hard. It always is, but. You let that come with you into each space you operate in throughout the day, or you choose. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so good. That might, well, we'll actually link really nice into the third question. So the last one is, if there's two versions of Sam, you take yourself back to, I want to go back to the moment where you'd had one of your first businesses and you were 250k in the hole. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> what was the key differentiator between the, the two versions of Sam? One goes on and has all the success you've had to date, be more pirate, all the companies you've had, all the impact you've had on different people, and the other one doesn't do any of those things. What's the difference? Oh, what an interesting question. Um, two things. Um, the easy answer is I stopped smoking weed <laughs> uh, around the same time, which I'm sure has, has a coincidence. And the other one is, and it's taken me a while to realise this, but the only person I've got anything to prove anything to is myself. And I spent a long time thinking I had to prove myself to everybody and everything else. Hmm. You know, in those early days, if you see a picture of me, I was usually wearing a second-hand suit. Uh, and I think, you know, probably psychologically, I was trying to be my dad or, or live up to him or, or whatever, mm. Th- thinking I had to be a grown-up, thinking I had to be this, you know, living the ideal of what I thought an entrepreneur was, you know, being a bit of a dick probably about it at the time as well, you know, stepping into these um, behaviours and, and, you know, absorbing what I thought and then living that and finally realising the only, the only person you have to prove anything to is yourself and finding out, you know, a bit back to Aurelius, you know, who you really are. And that's a real body of work. But I didn't even start considering it till then. You know, not, not, not just what do I want, what do others want me to be, what do I think I need. Just kind of slightly cutting through that crap. And that requires space and time and a bit of dedication to thinking about it and recognising you won't always get the answers. And it's part of the joy of getting a bit older, I think, as well, which is a privilege that you give less of a shit about what other people think. I can't wait to be 70 and not give a fuck about what anybody else thinks. <laughs> you know, grow my hair long and start smoking weed again. <laughs> Go full circle. <laughs> Return to yourself. <laughs> Amazing. All right, that's so good. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've genuinely really enjoyed it. I've that. really, really enjoyed it as well. It's been the highlight of my day. Thank you very oh, much good. indeed. And mine as well. And um, I just want to say to everybody, I can't recommend the book highly enough. You were speaking earlier about how you felt when you were doing the research and how it was really like eye-opening and, and exhilarating and you yeah. genuinely feel that as a reader as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really, really. Thanks a lot, man. Right, you're welcome. Cheers, Cheers Sam. Thanks. So there it is, guys. What an absolute legend Sam is. I'm sure you'll agree. I can't wait to listen back to the episode myself. It was really, really powerful and it went so much deeper than I thought it was going to go. And just some amazing all-round advice from Sam. He's done so many amazing things. The book, of course, is incredible. So if you haven't read that before, I can 100% vouch for it. You won't be disappointed. Go pick it up. It's Be More Pirate. I love the idea of Be More Gangster as well. So I'm sure if that becomes a reality and when it becomes a reality... I'll be reading that one too. So we are in week two of Take Flight in February, where I am doing a weekly podcast episode rather than fortnightly. And it's going great. I've had a couple of cancellations. 
so at one point I thought I was going to have to cancel the whole thing and go back to fortnightly but you know what I had this one in the bank so I thought I'll post this one up Sunday and figure it out so I'm hoping the next two weeks are going to go smoothly no more cancellations and I'll bring you two more amazing episodes I hope everyone's moving towards their goals and this hour of content was inspiration to want you to continue to do that and if you enjoyed the episode as I hope you did I would love it if you could screenshot the episode and post it on your Instagram account put it in your story put it on your feed wherever you want to do it any social channel whatsoever I love to interact with people on there have a chat with people hear about what people are enjoying and tag me at Whittle Take Flight Flight spelled F-L-1-G-H-T tag Sam and the Be More Pirate account as well that'd be great we'd love to hear what parts you're enjoying and if it's your first time listening you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Spotify anywhere where podcasts are and if you have 30 seconds or even less five seconds then I would love it if you could rate or review the podcast too it does loads for getting more exposure and sharing these people's stories which I find hugely inspiring myself so any of that support would be hugely appreciated and thank you in advance Until next time, stay positive, stay motivated and take flight.